So last week I started Joseph, and, uh, and so we gave a little bit of the background of the story, and then we got into Genesis chapter 37, which is the first chapter in the, in the Joseph story, and we just started to work through it. We only got through the first four verses, so we're just going to pick up where we left off last week. And again, what I love about these Bible stories it is so amazing is, you know, I could sit in my office all week and try to come up with a message that helps you in your life. But I can't, I can't think of, but there's so many different situations represented here and so many different things you're going through and all sorts of stuff. I could never come up with something that helps everyone. But the Holy Spirit has given us these Holy Spirit-inspired words. And the thing I'm amazed about is you just open it up and start going through the this, this story and start studying it. And this last week, I got some tremendous testimonies from last week, stuff I never even thought about when I was preaching. But you just talk about the word a little bit, and it just hits right where people are at in the most unexpected of ways. And that's what I pray God's going to do again today, um, because these are stories of real people, Holy Spirit-inspired words, all right? So verse 5, we did finish with this verse last week, and we'll pick up there now. Joseph had a dream. Remember that? We talked about that at the end of the, end of the message. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Verse 6, verse 7. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Okay, now, isn't it true that some things are just better left unsaid? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, and especially in between brothers. How many of you here this morning have brothers, okay? How many of you have brothers? Okay, I, I have a brother, and I'm an older brother too. Okay, and I've got a younger brother. He's five years younger than me. If he would have told me this dream when we were younger, I would have said, come over here, you little runt. And then it would have gone from there. And here's the thing you have to realize. I was a good kid, okay? These are not good kids, okay? You know, Stefan would have tried that on me. There would have been trouble. And I was a good kid. Joseph is telling this to guys that are not good guys, okay? So this is, this is not smart on his part. If, if you wanted to have just a little taste of what Joseph's brothers are like, we're reading right now in Genesis 37. This week... You know, don't do it with your kids. This is not family devotion material, really. Uh, you go to Genesis 34, and Genesis 34 is a story about Joseph's brothers before we meet Joseph. And in that story, you know, Joseph's sister, Dinah, gets attacked by a man. And instead of taking revenge on that one man, I mean, taking revenge would have been bad enough as it is, these brothers decide to take revenge on the entire town. Okay, it's one of the most sordid stories in the entire Bible. And this is Joseph's brothers doing this. Okay? So they trick the town into being circumcised. I mean, you can't, Hollywood can't make up something this crazy, okay? And they wait till they're at the peak of their pain and immobility, and they go in there and kill them all. These are wicked, wicked men. Okay? And I can just, these are the guys that Joseph, you know, after breakfast is like, hey, guys, guys, <laughs> come over here, I got a dream. You're all going to bow down to me, okay? This is not Joseph's brightest moment, all right? They talk about, uh, this week, you know, someone was talking to me about EQ and IQ. I don't know if you ever heard those terms. IQ is how smart you are with figuring things out on paper. EQ is your emotional intelligence. It's how good you are handling people. Joseph's EQ here is abominably low, all right? And we just, I mean, we just get that. But there is one thing I want you to notice out here, though, with this dream. The dream itself is good. The dream itself, there's nothing wrong with the dream itself. See, we often throw the whole baby out with the bathwater because, I mean, we all agree when we read this story, Joseph shouldn't have told his brothers this dream. I mean, just because God speaks to you something doesn't mean you should share it. By the end, that's something, some of you, that's the, you could go home right now and that was the thing you needed to hear. Just because God gave you something and you had a dream, you're blabbing it to everyone. Just because God told you something doesn't mean you're supposed to share it. 
You might, be, you might be just supposed to sit on that thing for a while. It might be better for you to sit on that, th- that thing for a while. Joseph wasn't supposed to share it. But having said that, okay, we're all agreed, 100%, Joseph shouldn't have shared that dream. But having said that now, here's the thing. Some people throw the, ba- the baby with the bathwater. The dream itself is a good dream. It's from God. It's not a bad dream. See, and one of the things that we're, we're kind of brought up in this area, and I don't think it's just, you know, this area. It's probably around the world. It's probably all cultures, but I can only speak for us. One of the things I commonly run into in this area is a lot of people are brought up to think that a dream like this is sinful and selfish just, uh, just on its own. Any kind of dream that, you know, that I'm going to be a great leader someday or I'm going to be in charge of a business or I'm going to be successful. Any dream like that, a lot of people in this area, isn't this true, are brought up to believe that if, if someone who is successful or wealthy or powerful is automatically sinful and worldly, isn't that true? And so we automatically think of a dream like this, a dream where you get raised up and other people have to bow down to you because you're the one in charge and you're the one who's successful. We think that's a sinful, selfish dream. Not true. Success and power and money and all these things, you know, we look at that guy from high school. Isn't this true? We sometimes do this. Guy from high school. I went to high school with that guy 30 years ago and now he's worked real hard and he's been successful. He's got a nice car, a couple nice cars and some nice clothes and we think, look at how worldly that guy is. And it's not true necessarily. Power and wealth and success are in God's hands, and he gives them to some people to use for his kingdom. Now, we can use those things for wrong, but power and success and a nice car and being the king and being the guy who's in charge is not inherently sinful. God can use those tools to advance his kingdom too, and he raises people up and gives them those things sometimes to advance his kingdom. Now, sometimes people use them for wrong. Many times in our culture, those things can be used for wrong, but that doesn't make them wrong in and of themselves. And this dream, the dream Joseph has to become a king is from God. So it's not a bad dream. It's a good gene. Okay? So now again, he shouldn't share it with his brothers. But in the end, his mistake doesn't, doesn't make what they're doing okay because what they have is, is jealousy. And isn't that what it really is? The, when we look at successful people, we say, well, look at him. He's so worldly. Look at him. He's so sinful. Look at him. He's so rich. And, and, he's, and he obviously can't love God because if he did, he would give it all away and be poor like me. Right? That's what we sometimes think. And really what we're just doing is we're spiritualizing our jealousy. Rather than confronting the fact that, hey, I'm just jealous, we rather make them, the person who has the stuff, the sinful one, they're the worldly one because they have the stuff. But it's really just jealousy is all it is. And we're going to see this at work in, the, in Joseph's brothers. Verse 8, his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You want to know something about jealousy? And by the way, many of you, you know, I use the word jealousy right now. And when I say that word jealousy, most people don't think of themselves as jealous. Most people, you're sitting here today and I, I talk about jealousy. Oh, that's for someone else. That's for Joseph's brothers. They were, they were wicked. We don't think we really have jealousy. But the fact of the matter is, I think all of us deal with this at some level. See, uh, Joseph, this jealousy sneaks into their hearts. And, and really what it comes down to in many ways is it's, it's kind of anger against God, isn't it? It's really kind of anger against God. I mean, you think of Cain and Abel. I was thinking of Cain and Abel this week too. Same sort of situation. Another set of brothers. Abel gives a sacrifice God likes, and Cain doesn't. Cain's mad at Abel because God accepts Abel's sacrifice and then murders him. We see the same thing here. Joseph's brothers, God is favoring Joseph, and Joseph's brothers are going to get mad at him, and they're going to want to kill him as well. 
And so jealousy is this poison, but really what it comes down to is a poison in your heart. It'll tear apart your relationships. It'll tear apart families. It's all over the Bible, many stories about how jealousy tears apart. But really what it boils down to in many ways is anger against God because life's not fair. That's what we think. And God doesn't really care about our notions of fairness. Have you ever noticed that? Like God comes to Joseph and his brothers and he doesn't go like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make all 12 of you, well, I can't just make one of you the king. Right? Because isn't this how us parents think? Like, I wouldn't want to just give, you know, I couldn't just give, if I'm going to give one of my kids a treat, then I have to give all of them a treat, right? And, and that is true. That's very important. We don't want to show favoritism. But when, so when we approach our kids, we always want to, we don't want to give one something or do stuff with one and not do it with others. But God doesn't do the same thing with us, does he? Because he doesn't say, well, I'm going to make all of them kings. No, no, no. I'm not going to make all of them. I'm not going to give all of them wealth. I'm not going to raise all of them up to this place. I'm going to pick Joseph. And Joseph's brothers, this upsets them. How is that fair? He's already the spoiled one. He's already the favored one. How come he gets to be king? And they're upset. And you know the same thing. We might not call it jealousy, but the same thing is at, is at work in many of our hearts today. How come God, and again, we don't confront it usually consciously, how come God raised that person up and not me? How come God raised my brother up but not me? How come he raised my sister-in-law up but not me? How come God answered that person's uh, prayer for a job and not mine? How come God gave that person kids and not me? How come God healed that person's cancer but not my family's or son or daughter's or whatever? And that's just the thing about God's sovereignty is he chooses. He chooses. He doesn't do the same with everyone. He doesn't heal everyone. He chooses that one, I'm going to work through that person's healing, but this other person, I'm going to work through that person's suffering. I'm the one, I'm going to work through that person's leadership. I'm going to work through that person's success. And this one, I'm going to work through their poverty and their lack. He chooses. And he's sovereign and he's in control and he chooses. So he raises up one, he doesn't raise up another. But our humanity recoils at that and says, that's not fair. And that's what jealousy really is. There's this core component of we're angry at God. How come you choose them and not me? How come you answer that and not mine? Now, of course, the thing you have to realize is that God doesn't care about our notions of fairness, yes, but it's not that this has anything to do with God's love. Some of you might be thinking now, well, God can't be a good God then. I mean, he isn't fair. I wouldn't do that with my kids. I wouldn't give one a treat and not the other ones. How come he does that here? He picks Joseph out of all of them, raises them up, and the rest of them, no. How that doesn't seem fair. The thing you have to realize again is we see with such temporal, temporary eyes. We don't look at it with eternity. And the thing we so often forget is the fact that success here on this earth has nothing to do with God's love. Jesus says in the Gospels, those who are first here on this earth will be last in heaven, and those who are last here on earth will be first in heaven. And, and so we see that success here on this earth has nothing to do. One person could be the most successful pastor or business person doing, so, you know, it looks on the outside like great things for God, and another person, God is choosing to work through their failures, and it looks like they did nothing for God. And, but in heaven, it could very well be flipped. We could find that on the inside, this guy wasn't actually faithful to the Lord. It just looked like it on the outside, and God wanted to use his success for his kingdom, and this guy was actually faithful to the Lord. Success on earth has nothing to do with love. We know from Scripture that God loves the orphans and the widows. Success here on this earth is purely a tool for God to use to advance his kingdom. So to some people, he gives the tool of success to work through. To other people, he gives this other tool of failure and suffering to that he's going to work through. But he loves all people. It has nothing to do with love. And in heaven, all things will be righted. 
but it certainly doesn't equate with our notions of fairness. And so God picks Joseph, who already is the spoiled one. He's already the favored one, and it's Joseph that God's going to call up. But of course, another thing that jealous people that we rarely think about is the fact that those who are raised up to be more successful are often have to suffer more as well. Isn't that true? I mean, Joseph, yeah, his brothers are jealous. Why would God pick him to be king and not one of us? How come that little runt gets to be king who we already don't like and he's spoiled? How come he gets to be king and not us? But what they don't see and they're not paying attention to is that in order to become king, he's going to have to get thrown in a pit. He's going to have to be sold off into slavery. He's going to have to be lied about. He's going to have to languish years in an Egyptian dungeon. So in the end, is God really, is it really that unfair? Like, do you want that? Do, yeah, do you want God to be, call you a king? Oh, sure, I, I like the sound of that. Well, in order to become that, you're going to have to go through this, 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 and this. You know what? I think I'd rather God work through me a different way. Isn't that true? See, but when we're jealous, we don't look at that part of it either, do we? But it, has, it doesn't have to do with God's love. It has to do with God's plans. And he does love all people. Now, of course, you might be sitting here and, is our suffering real? Yes. Do we have pain? Yes. I'm not saying, you know, someone else has kids and you don't and that hurts and you should just suck it up and be happy about it all the time. No, we have legitimate pain and God loves us and he wants us to come to him, but we must learn to say like Job in Job 2 verse 10, shall we accept good from God but not evil? Because jealousy is a poison that will destroy you and lead you into greater things and that's into greater sins and that's what I'm going to show you now. This jealousy, it, when it got into Cain, it leads to murder. It gets into Joseph's brothers, and it's going to lead to almost murder as well. It's going to lead into something pretty much just as bad, which is selling him into slavery. And we'll see that now, verse 9. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and, and told it to his brothers again. And I, wow. <laughs> I mean, the first time, that's crazy. The second time, I mean, only a 17-year-old boy hopped up and testosterone and hormones probably can be that oblivious. But anyway, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And uh, so again, of course, Joseph shouldn't be sharing this, but, but it, it's fascinating to me that God gives him the same dream twice and it gets recorded in Scripture. He didn't just give it to him once. I mean, we don't see what's going on in Joseph's heart, right? You know, he has the first dream, he shares it. Is he wondering, like, was that really God? Is he, is he struggling with this thing? Does he know, ah, is something happening? Was that? And, he, and he's unsure and he's afraid. We don't know what's going on in the background, but God gives it to him a second time. And that's one of the things I love, I love that about God. And you'll see this throughout the scriptures over and over again. God is not upset about having to repeat himself. He will happily make himself clear to you. I know sometimes Christians are kind of locked into this thing. They're not sure, did God say that or not? And they feel like they should just, they, like God's mad at them because they're not acting yet. And really what they are is just unsure. And they're afraid to ask God to give, it a, give them a confirmation. And I could show you stories right across scripture. But this is another one where God is not upset about having to repeat himself. He loves to communicate with us. He loves to confirm. You can ask him for confirmation. You can ask him to speak again. You can ask him to give you peace and assurance. And, and you can move forward like that, verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, as I talked about before, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right, now is where the story starts to get interesting, right? And the jealousy is taking root and uh, is now going to lead to the famous parts of the Joseph story. Verse 12, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, and Jake, this is Jacob, right? For those of you who are new to the Bible or new here, 
J- Jacob is his name that we mostly talk about him as, but God actually gave him a different name, Israel, but it's the same person later on in his life, okay? And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Now, when I'm reading the scriptures, I like to have kind of a picture in my mind of what's going on, don't you? And it just helps you engage with the story and learn things that are, that are going on. And so I was looking up on a map and stuff this week. I, I was trying to figure out, like, okay, so, so Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem. Like, is that like sending him to Mitchell? I mean, is this like a half-hour walk? Is this more like sending him to Grunthal, uh, to the crazy people out there in the, in the boonies? Or like, what, what's going on here when he sends him to Shechem? Um, and so he sends him out. So I, I looked it up, and, and Shechem was about 60 miles from where, uh, from where they were living. Okay, so that's a long, that's a long walk, and Joseph's probably going to have to spend a night out, out in the open. And the thing you have to realize is this is not just some, like, nice, easy, safe little hike. Like, oh, let's go on a 60-mile you know, a little walk. Um, the thing you have to realize is this is an area that in the Middle East there and in Israel was known to be full of lions and bears. I mean, this is the exact same area. This trip he's going to take up to Shechem. This is the same basic area where David as a boy, uh, w- as, or as a teenager probably, would kill a lion and a bear while protecting the sheep. This is the same basic area where Samson would be at- attacked by a lion. This is the same basic area, 1 Kings 14, if you want to re- read a really fascinating story this week, mark it down right now and look up 1 Kings 14, where this prophet, who is unnamed, goes and makes a prophecy. On his way back, he disobeys God and gets killed by a lion, gets attacked. This is the same area, okay? And Jacob says to Joseph, hey, can you just, I mean, this is, you know, this is Af- African lion safari, and now Joseph is just going to walk through there alone. I mean, I was thinking after this, I'm like, would I send my kid to do that? I mean, if this is what you do with your favorite son, Jacob, I can't imagine how you're treating the other ones. But he sends Joseph into this thing and, uh, you know, a little baggy lunch and a stick to beat off the wild animals and, and uh, go see how your brothers are doing. But so, and Joseph said to him, here I am. So there he is. He's a very obedient, courageous kid. A little dumb with the dreams, but otherwise uh, in pretty good shape. So Jacob said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And a man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Now, this is one of those, this whole little section here is, is one of those little passages that just grabs my attention sometimes. And I think, why is this in here? Because this is not the kind of detail that is typically in a Bible story. Isn't that true? Because we've talked. I talked about this in the, in the Bible series we just did recently. And I've talked about this at other times. The Bible, as a general rule, 99% of the time, when it tells a story, it gives us a bare amount of details. Isn't that true? We've looked at that before. Like normally the Bible will take, you know, huge events that happen. Like Jesus did a whole bunch of miracles and did some crazy stuff. And it'll condense it down to like two, three sentences, a paragraph. You know, it condenses, you know, big stories about battles and intrigues and things that happen. You know, like David has an affair and then he kills Uriah. And it just condense it down to a couple of short little verses like this. And it's like, it, so usually the Bible gives us only the barest amount of details. Which is why, when I read the Joseph story, you would expect the Bible to say, so Jacob sent Joseph to see his brothers, and Joseph went to his brothers. And normally in the Bible, it would skip all the details about the stuff in between. But here, we get this big section where Joseph is out in the fields, wandering around lost, doesn't know where his brothers are, and some man comes up and talks to him and helps him find it. And so the question is, why would all of a sudden, you know, when the Bible normally skips out all the details and just gives us the barest essentials, I mean, everything's Holy Spirit-inspired, so everything in there has to be essential, why would a section like this 
be in there? And, and the answer, I think, and I can't prove this, but I think that Joseph met an angel here. I think Joseph met an angel. I mean, it's clearly God's divine providence at work. Let me, let me just develop this here for just a second. I think Joseph met an angel here because this is clearly God's divine providence at work in this story, is it not? I mean, think about God's in control. I can just, uh, you know, he's, got, he's got slave traders on their way to this pit over here already right now. And Joseph's brothers are here and all the pieces are in place and Potiphar's over here where he's going to have to buy Joseph as a slave and all this sort of stuff. And Joseph's lost in a field in Shechem. And I can just see God going, Joseph, you have an appointment with the slave traders. I got to get you from here to here, right? He's got an appointment with suffering. Does Joseph not have an appointment with suffering? And if Joseph can't find his brothers, he's going to go home and nothing will happen, will it? He'll go home and be happy. He'll have supper. Hey, Dad, I didn't find them. The slave traders won't pick him up. He won't go to Egypt. The whole plan is off the rails. Jesus doesn't get born. Remember, we talked about this last week. God's got this massive plan in the works. And if Joseph's just lost and he doesn't get over here, if he doesn't meet his appointment with suffering, then a whole bunch of things come totally undone. And so God says, you've got to keep this appointment. And in his sovereignty, he sends an angel. Now, I can't prove it's an angel but, or a nameless man or whatever. Either way, it sort of is an angel. But he sends this guy to just, happens to just meet Joseph in this field. And happens to know, we never know his name, but we, happens to know exactly where his brothers are and is able to tell him where they are. And so God, we see God in his sovereignty. Of course, his, I talked about before, but his plans being almost off the rails. In his sovereignty, they're never almost off the rails, right? But he uses this angel to keep Joseph on schedule. And Joseph has no idea, right? I'm sure he thanked the angel. Hey, thank you for sending my way, me on my way so my brothers can sell me into slavery, right? Isn't that true? Have you ever thought about that? I sometimes think about that when I pray. Sometimes you're thanking God for something good that happened, like thanks for sending that person along the way to, to get me to where I wanted to go, and you don't realize you're on your way to something a lot different than what you thought, right? And you're saying, so sometimes I say to God, thank you, I think. You know, Joseph, thank you, God, for sending this person here so that I can get over here, and that's when he gets there, it's not going to be good, is it? Right? But that's God and his sovereignty. And I wonder how many of us at the end of our lives, we're going to look back. Because Joseph, I mean, if this was an angel, and I can't prove it, but if it was an angel, you know, Joseph, I'm sure, didn't realize it, obviously. Um, but I wonder if at the end of his life, he looks back and he sees all the places where God, boy, if, if that wouldn't have happened there, this whole thing would have been off. I wouldn't be king of Egypt. I wouldn't be helping people. God's plan wouldn't be going forward. And he looks at all these places where God divinely intervenes, sovereignly intervenes in his life. Fleeting encounters with an angel here. Fleeting encounters with someone with a circumstance over here that bring you to where you need to be just in the nick of time to do all the things that God has in plan. And I wonder how many of us at the end of our lives are going to look back over our lives and there's a hundred encounters that you don't think about with a nameless man in the field who just happens to know exactly where it is that you need to go, where God sends an angel into our lives and hundreds of little encounters in our lives where he moves us a little here and a little here. We have no idea what's going on and God is moving us sovereignly in his master plan all according to his time. And I actually think that we, we regularly uh, uh, run into this. Some of you might be sitting there and you're going, I mean, this sounds a little kooky, Chris. Are you saying that, that you think it's actually you know, somewhat regular that we, God uses angels and we run into angels and they help us along with his plan? Yeah. I do actually think it's somewhat regular. And you say, well, I mean, that just seems weird to me. Well, let me show you another scripture. 
just jump out of Genesis for a second. Let's go to Hebrews 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says this. And he's preaching a message about hospitality. And in his message for, about hospitality, he gives the number one weirdest reason I've ever seen as to why you should be hospitable. Okay? And if you've ever heard a message on hospitality, you know, a preacher gets up, he gives four reasons why you need to be hospitable and good to, to, to strangers. And, you know, it's because of this and because of this and because of that and because of this. And you write all the notes down, you go home and go, yeah, we need to be nice to strangers. We need to be good to strangers. We need to love strangers. And I bet you, you never heard a message where this is the reason they gave. Because Paul says this, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So be good to strangers. You meet a stranger on the side of the road, help him with his tire. You meet a stranger who needs prayer somewhere, you go and you pray for them. You meet a stranger who needs a meal, you help them with a meal. Why? Because thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now that is the wildest reason for being nice to strangers that I've ever heard, but it's in God's Word. It's not the only reason. Certainly if we went through Scripture, we could find other important reasons why being good to strangers is so important. It's part of the character of God and showing love and all that sort of stuff. There's all kinds of important reasons. But Paul gives us another reason here that we in our rationalistic Western mindsets rarely think about, and that is this, that it is common enough. You wonder, I mean, Chris, you're being kooky. We meet angels. Joseph met an angel. It's common enough that God sends angels into our lives that Paul would instruct us to be nice to strangers just in case you're being nice to an angel. And the negative implication is you wouldn't want to be mean to an angel. And it happens enough times that Paul says, I'm going to write this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit just in case. Be nice to strangers because thereby you might actually be being nice to angels and there's many stories of this. If you look in Scripture, it's, it, the only reason we don't believe in this anymore is because our minds have gotten so rationalistic. If you go through Scripture, there are so many angelic encounters that people have in here, it's not even funny. And I've talked to many of you. I know stories of uh, my parents, um, that a couple of them, that are best explained. The only way we can explain them is it had to have been an angel. Right at the right moment. Fleeting encounter. You know, like when, you, when you meet an angel, it's not something, you're not hanging out for hours. It's usually a fleeting encounter to keep yourself in line or on time for a divine appointment. Maybe to keep you alive in some cases with one of the ones with my parents. But I've talked to other people here too who have had encounters with people and someone comes along. It's a fleeting encounter. It's something right in the nick of time. Boom, and it can only be explained. Later you look around, you don't know who that person was. You don't know where they are. They're nowhere to be thanked. And just like Joseph here, a nameless man just happens to be there. Happens to know all the stuff he needs to know to get him to the place he needs to be. And some of these are best explained, I think, by angels. And I think someday we're going to look back and find that God and his sovereignty was moving the pieces along in our lives a lot more than we realized and helping us along, us totally, obliviously unawares, happily unaware. I sometimes tell God in prayer, I say, Lord, I'm just glad I don't actually know what's coming. (laughs) Just, I'd like to be like Joseph. Can you imagine if Joseph, if God had come to Joseph and told him in advance what was all going to happen, he would have had a nervous breakdown, Okay. God says, no, you know, some things are just, you know, sometimes the band-aid is better ripped off real quick when the kid's not looking, right? Isn't that true? And sometimes some of these suffering things, it's just better to just happen. I'm going to move you along, and, and you just trust me. That's what it comes down to. I just want to say to God, God, I just have to trust you. I have no idea what you have for me in my future, and please don't tell me. And don't tell Grace Fast either. She might, you know, spill it to me or something. Just, I don't want to know. But I just want to trust you and I know that you're working in me and my kids and I want to be open to what you're doing. I want to trust you. Verse 17, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So the angel helps him, right? And, and it's not going to turn out the way he thought, though. 
So they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Notice they're not even calling him Joseph anymore. They've reduced him to a label. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what become, will become of his dreams. So they actually are consciously, they're consciously doing this. Almost despite God, they're just consciously, you know what, God? You said he's going to be king. We're going to kill him right now and see what happens to the dreams then. They're, they're consciously resisting here something that has been prophesied. And yet, none of this is out of God's hands, is it? Verse 21, God can even use Reuben. I mean, Reuben here, I could go through a history of stuff Reuben did. Slept with his father's own wife. Okay, that's bad. Okay, he did other things too that are real terrible. But these guys are going to take God's plan off the rails. And God will even use a Reuben, a wicked Reuben, to be a good guy. And when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, do not lay a hand on him. Because again, he's planning that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Okay, now that's cold, okay? I mean, think about that little detail there. Joseph, I mean, you've got to imagine, they strip him down, he's naked. This is their younger brother. They throw him down the well, and I mean, so he's going to be in pain. He's probably hurt. And not to mention his insides. I can only imagine him calling up because he can't even believe they're doing this. I mean, he is so oblivious to how much they hate him. I mean, that's why he told them the dreams in the first place. Like, this guy has no emotional intelligence at this point in figuring out what people are thinking. He just wanders in there. They throw him in a pit. He has no idea. I can just imagine him crying out, guys, what are you doing? You can't be serious, guys. Hey, guys, let me out. You're not, no, Judah, Reuben. No, no, you don't mean to actually leave me down here. Can you imagine his cries? More and more desperate. And then his brothers sit down and eat their sandwiches. And this guy's yelling out of the pit, let me out, guys, guys, I'm in pain, help me out. And they're just calmly, whatever they're, and they sit down to eat. I mean, these are hard, hard men. And they're horrible. I mean, the hope of this is, when you see at the end of this story, some of the things God is able to do, then we'll see that later in this series. If God can work with these guys, he can work with any of us. But they sat down to eat. These are bad, wicked, wicked, evil men. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Now, I don't know, uh, when you're reading the Old Testament, some of it's nice to know family lines and stuff. Uh, the Ishmaelites, they, they're basically seeing, you know, th- this is family. I mean, it's the kind of the family you don't go to the Christmas gatherings. Like, you don't really want to be around them, the kind of the weird family. But, I mean, remember, Joseph and his brothers, Jacob is their dad, Isaac is their grandpa, Isaac's brother is who? Ishmael. Right? So, a bunch of Ishmaelites come. Oh, here comes the weird side of the family. All right? Kind of the bad side of the family. We don't talk about them really much but, whoa, opportunity, right? Here come the Ishmaelites. And uh, coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill a brother, brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let, our hand, let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. Now, let, let's not kill him. He is our brother after all. Let's just sell him into slavery. I mean, that's... And his brothers listened to him. That's the next verse. They all go along with this reasoning. Okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, Let's not kill him. He has their own flesh and blood. Let's just sell him off. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Because he's the oldest. He's going to 
He's going to answer for this now with dad, right? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And so now we get the beginning of this big cover-up. And you know, all sin leads to this choice. All sin brings about a choice with it. Every time someone sins, every time someone does something wrong, there's always a choice that comes after the sin. And the, and the choice is, because you've got to do something with it now. The choice is, will you confess it and bring it out into the open, or will you cover it up? Isn't that true? Will you confess this thing, will you bring it out into the open, or will you cover it up? And we obviously know what Joseph's brothers are doing. That's what they're doing here, is they're going to cover it up. But here's the thing about covering it up. I mean, we cover up sin. Why do we cover up sin? We want it to go away. We, wanna, we want things to go back to normal. I mean, Joseph's brothers aren't feeling, they're not covering it up because they feel sorry for what they've done. Not yet. That will come later, as we'll see in the series. But they want life to go back to normal. They're, they're kind of hoping, you know, dad's going to have a period of mourning for, you know, a, some months or maybe a couple of years. And then we'll go back, we'll have it, dad will go back to normal and we'll have dad all to ourselves and they're thinking, and life will just go on. Let's just cover this thing up. We cover up sin because we just want it to go away, right? We cover up, you know, I hear, you know, men or women, they cover up an adultery. Well, why am I going to bring that thing out? Let's just, nobody knows about it. It doesn't hurt my wife if they don't know about it. It doesn't hurt my spouse if, if they don't know about it. Let's cover it up. And if we cover it up, we can go back to working on our marriage. We can go back to working on whatever it is in our business. And we just cover it up and the sin goes away. But here's the thing about covering up sin. It never goes away. It never goes away. We think if we just hide it, after a year or two, things will go back to normal. It'll be as if it never happened. But the thing is, when you hide sin, it doesn't die. When you hide sin, it doesn't go away. In fact, it gets stronger. Hiding your sin always makes it worse because sin feeds on darkness. And Joseph's brothers are going to find this out big time, aren't they? Joseph's brothers are going to find this out big time because, first of all, they think, you know, after a few months, maybe a couple of years, Dad will be back to normal. We'll have Dad all to ourselves. It's not going to happen. We're going to find later, later in the story, Jacob is going to be a broken man. He's going to mourn Joseph for the next 20 years until he sees him again. They'll never get their dad back to normal. Furthermore, it's not happening yet now, but in the coming years, the first creeping doubts and guilt about what they've done is going to creep into their wicked and dark hearts. And by the time they finally see Joseph at the end of this story, later in Genesis, in the, in the Genesis 40s, by the time they finally see him, they are actually carrying a heavy burden of guilt and remorse and anxiety and fear from the sin they did two decades ago. Because sin doesn't go away. You think, I'm going to hide it. It's worse if I bring it out in the open. No, it's not. You bring it out in the open, it, it's going to die. There might be consequences, but it'll die. It'll have no more power once it's in the open. But you hide that thing, it never goes away. And then the crazy thing is, not only does hiding it make it stronger, not only does hiding it not make it go away, but you know that in the end, all of your sin will be revealed anyway? Like you hide it because you want it to go away. You hide it because you want to forget about it. You hide it because you don't want the consequences. What you don't realize is that when you hide it, it's going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. It's going to become a burden you can't even carry on the inside. Every year you carry that secret, it's going to get heavier and heavier and heavier. And then you know what happens in the end? And in the end, God will reveal all your sins anyway. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. You want to see a stunning message he preached? Nothing. Luke chapter 12, verse 2. Nothing. Think about that word, nothing. 
Let that word sink into your head right now. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Think about that. Jesus is the Son of God. He's Yahweh. He will not be wrong about anything. He will be proven right in every word and sentence he's ever said. And he's set up there for all of eternity. There is nothing that is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That is a sobering statement. God is 100% committed to revealing and bringing out into the open every single hidden sin that we have as humans, as individuals, as people covered up and tried to hide. He's absolutely committed to it. And Joseph's brothers are going to find this out, aren't they? I mean, if anybody ever had a secret that was safe, it had to be them. Because they sold, I mean, this is a time where there's no internet, there's no Facebook, there's no emails, there's none of this global communication. When they send Joseph to Egypt, the chances of running into him ever again are 0%. I mean, nobody's ever going to find out about that one, right? Except they haven't taken God into account. See, in reality, there is no such a thing as a secret because God sees everything. And he's stronger than you. And he's absolutely committed to bringing every single hidden thing out into the open. And he will use the most bizarre, crazy, comic, whatever, tragic circumstances to make that secret you think is so safe and blow it up. It's for everyone to see. So Joseph's brothers, they think, ah, we're safe with this one. He's gone to Egypt. Nobody will ever know. Nobody, we're safe on that one. We just got to keep it hidden. Dad will go back to normal eventually and life will be better. And what they don't realize is that 20 years down the road, and God knows all of this, he's got a famine planned. And that famine is going to be so bad that they're going to starve to death if they don't go to another country in order to get bread. And lo and behold, out of all the countries around there, what is going to be the only country that's going to have bread? Egypt. So they're going to have to go to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, lo and behold, who is going to be the one person out of millions who on that day when they come looking for bread is going to happen to be the one handing out bread? Joseph. And their sin's going to be out in the open, isn't it? And God, you can't stop him. He's all, he's omniscient. He's all, all powerful. He's sovereign. And when Jesus says, there is nothing concealed and nothing hidden that I won't bring out into the open, that should make you shake a little bit if you're trying to sit on something. Because your choices then are, you can either bring it out and deal with it yourself and repent and get it forgiven, which is wonderful. That's the way to do it. Or you can try to hide it, in which case God will just, you'll suffer with it for years as long as he lets you, and then he'll reveal it anyway. And then he'll reveal it anywhere, and there's nothing you're going to be able to do to stop him from that. And by the way, when God does this, it's not because he's bad or hateful. It, 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 you know, why does God, why is God so concerned to bring every hidden sin out into the open? Why? Well, part of it is he's holy and he's just. Certainly, big part of the reason. I love that about God. He's so pure, he's so holy. He won't allow sin. But you know another reason why? Because he's loving and merciful. You say, how is that loving and merciful? Like, why not just let me get on with my life, God? I've hidden this sin. It's driving me insane. Just let me have some peace. And God says, no, no, no. It's my mercy that I don't let you have any peace. It's my mercy that I force the Joseph's brother's sins out into the open after 20 years. And you know why it's his mercy? Because it's better to deal with your sins here on this earth than it is to have them brought up on the day of judgment. Is that not true? 
See, Paul said it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 to 11, he says this. So, whether we are at home or away, everywhere we go, every day that we live, we make it our aim to please God. Every day we live, our goal is to please God with our living. Why? Here's why. Because, for, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, nobody left out, every single person here, me, everybody who's ever lived, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, because we must all stand before him, and we must all give an account for the things we've done in the body, whether good or evil, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Let me ask you something. Wouldn't you rather deal with your junk here and get freedom from it and get forgiven of it so it never gets brought up again rather than going to your grave with your sins and on judgment day standing before Jesus and having to be called to account for that? See, it's God's mercy. And you know what amazes me? God even has mercy on Joseph's wicked brothers. I doubt there's anyone in here today that is more wicked than Joseph's brothers. I mean, they were wicked. They were wicked. And as we're going to see near the end of this series, God, when God brings their sin out into the light at the end of this whole story, even they get to, even they repent. Isn't that amazing? I mean, these are guys that were destined straight to hell with that kind of wickedness. And in the end, God has mercy even on them by bringing their sin out into the open. Is, is it comfortable for them? No, it's horrible. But out of that discomfort comes repentance, which for eternity we can be very thankful for. So let me ask you something. I know in a, in a group this big here this morning, for sure, for sure, because we've all done it. There isn't a person here who hasn't at some point in their life, unless you are like two days old and you were just born in the hospital, you know, yesterday or whenever, okay? But if you're anything older than like a week or two weeks, you know, or, or whatever, you know what it's like to have hidden sin in your life. You might, you, you might have dealt with it already, but we've all, I've done it in my life. It's a horrible feeling. Horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. But you might be here today and you still have hidden sin. Hidden. You're sitting on an, on an adultery from five years ago. You're sitting on something you did as a kid that you're just so ashamed of. You're sitting on something from a long, long time. Or maybe it's recent. Maybe you're sitting on, uh, you know, you looked at pornography last week and you don't want to tell your wife. I don't know what it is, but you're sitting on it. And you think if you just sit on it, it's going to go away. This message today is God's mercy to you. Because you need to deal with it. It's not going to go away. It's going to become heavier and a heavier and a heavier burden. And then someday God's going to reveal it anyway. And you'd rather him reveal it in this life than in the next. So if you have that today, you say, oh Chris, I, you don't understand the fallout from this sin. If I confess this, it's going to create serious fallout. Yeah, sin does have consequences. But God is good, and the fallout that we experience from our sins here is always better than the eternal fallout there. And, it, and your sin won't just affect you. It, Joseph's brother's sins affected Joseph, it affected them, and it affected their dad. It affects everyone around you. But you know, I, I want to finish this message off here with some hope today too, because there is hope in this. There is hope in this story for both groups of people. See, sin, sin almost always creates you know, two groups of people. I mean, there, there are some sins where it's just kind of you sinning against yourself. But most sins create two groups of people. There are the victims of the sin and there are the perpetrators of the sin. So there's the one where this sin was done against someone else and they are the victim. 
And then there's the people who did the sin. They're the perpetrators. And most sins have perpetrators and victims because someone got sinned against. And certainly in the Joseph story, we see victims and perpetrators, right? Joseph is a victim. Joseph's dad, Jacob, is a victim. He loses his kid, right? And the brothers are the perpetrators. Now, of course, on the surface, we know this story definitely gives hope to the victims. But this story is not just a story of hope for the victims. It's a story of hope for the perpetrators. And the hope is this, that, and this is the beauty of the Joseph story. The Joseph story is really like this much about Joseph and about this much about God. Because Joseph, the, the, you know, the whole Joseph story, Joseph doesn't know what's going on. He's just in the hands of God, being moved along for God's purposes. And yes, he has to make choices that he'll be rewarded for, and he was faithful and all sorts of things, but he's not the one masterminding the whole thing. The Joseph story is everything about who God is. And in this story, we find out that God is bigger than both our hurts and our wickedness. He's bigger than both our hurts and our wickedness, which is hope to both the victim and the perpetrator. I want to jump. We'll finish Genesis 37 next week. I'm going to jump now. One last passage. Genesis 50. End of this story. Jacob has died. Joseph's brothers are terrified that Joseph is now going to kill them because their dad is dead. And they're terrified. They come to him and he can see that they're scared. And when he sees that they're scared that he's going to take revenge on them, he weeps. And then he makes this statement. And in this statement, we find healing for both victims and perpetrators. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me. I mean, you desired everything in you. These are the perpetrators he's talking to. In that one statement, you meant evil to me, but God meant it for good. In that one statement, that's one of the most healing statements I think could be made anywhere. Joseph brings victims and perpetrators together under the merciful, loving, sovereign hand of God. Because in that one statement, he brings even the perpetrators under the mercy of God because he says, you had only wickedness intended. You were not intending to do any good to me. Your only goal was to take God's plans off the rails. And in that wickedness, to to hate me and to ruin God's plan, here's the amazing thing about God. He's bigger than their wickedness. And if he's bigger than their wickedness, he's bigger than yours because you couldn't be more wicked. This is the height of wickedness, what they did to Joseph. And they tried to derail God's plans. But here's how big God was. Here's how big. When Joseph's brothers tried to derail God's plans for Joseph by sending him into slavery, it's not like God had to work around their plans. Oh, shoot, I was going to make Joseph king. Now they've put this roadblock here. I've got to work around it, and I'll still make him king, but it's going to take me a detour. Do you realize that's not what happens in this story? That's not what happens. God's bigger than that even. What happens in the Joseph story is Joseph's brothers try to derail. Here's Joseph. Okay, he's going to be king. Joseph's brothers come in here and try to put a roadblock to stop him from being king. And the amazing thing about this story is not that God works around their wicked intentions. What's amazing about this story is he actually takes their intentions and uses the very things they intended to ruin the plan to be the very things that actually advance the plan. Is that not the bigness of God? He doesn't work around their plans. He uses their plans to do exactly the opposite of what they wanted to do. They wanted to stop God's plans, and he used the very things they tried to do to stop it, to advance it. You can't beat God. And so here we see the mercy of God, even on perpetrators. Joseph says, I can forgive you. And by the way, if, God, if Joseph can forgive them, God can forgive. That forgiveness is coming from God. Joseph says, I can forgive you because what you intended for evil God intended for good. 
And you might be here today and you are a perpetrator or you were a perpetrator. Ultimately, all of us are both victims and perpetrators at various times in our lives. Isn't that true? We're all victims sometimes. We're all perpetrators sometimes. But you might be here today and you've done things that you're so ashamed of. And maybe you've even dealt with them. You went to an encounter. You came and saw a pastor and you dealt with them. But you're still so ashamed and you can't escape the shame. And to you, the Holy Spirit says through Joseph that yes, what you intended originally for evil, what you intended evil, but God can take even those very evil actions that you did that you think are wasted and you wish you hadn't done them and you can't get away from them and he will use those for good. And so there's healing here for perpetrators. That's good news for perpetrators. There's also good news here for victims. You've got this hole in your heart, something that was done to you 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and you just can't deal with it. You've moved on in your Christian life, but you still have this massive hole, and in some ways you're bitter at God. You you can't even think about it, because it's like, how could God allow that to happen? And there's healing here for you too, because the thing you have to realize is you've got this hole in your heart, and you can't see how anything good could come out of this thing that happened to you when you were a kid, or whenever, or this, and your first marriage, or different things that were done to you. And the problem is because you see what happened to you, you see that evil thing that was done to you, that wicked thing that was done to you, you see that thing as being bigger than God. And you don't realize the reality of what Joseph found out. How could anybody be betrayed worse than Joseph? By his own brothers, sold off into slavery, later was lied about and abused and thrown into a dungeon for years. He could have carried that around all his life. And he didn't. What was the secret to him not carrying around bitterness? I'll tell you what. Because he didn't look back on it. We look back at it and say, what a waste. I wish that had never happened to me. And Joseph looked back and saw those evil things. Would he have chosen them? No. Did he like them? No. But in the end, he could look back and say they weren't wasted because God was actually bigger than my hurt and he took the things that hurt me and actually turned those for my good of who I am today and, what, and how many people he's helping through this. God is bigger than our hurts. God is bigger than our wickedness and our evil. And I want to pray for you all today. I want you all to stand. We're going to sing a, a song then right after that. You can just remain standing after that. But I want you to stand. And I want to just pray for you guys today because I don't know where you're at. I don't know... Some of you are here today, again, you're here the victim, you're here the perpetrator, I don't know. But preaching, it's not a human word that's going to do something to your life. This is the word of God, and when that truth is spoken into you by the Holy Spirit, then it can do something, it can move things. So I want you just to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I just want to pray for you. And I just sense, you know, some of you here today, you've been carrying stuff around, and, and today is the day God's beginning to release you. And I want to pray, first of all, for those of you who are here today and you are sitting on hidden sins. First of all, Lord, if there are hidden sins in any of us right now, I pray that you would bring it to our minds. I thank you, Father. Some of us are here today, and actually, we have been driven crazy by our own hidden sins. And actually, I thank you for making us crazy and not giving us peace. I thank you for not leaving us alone, so that one day we're surprised on Judgment Day by the things, you're, by the things that we did that we had pushed away. And Lord, I pray for those who are here today who have hidden sins. Lord Jesus, today is the day to deal. Today is the day to end that poison, to end that darkness, to end that bondage, to bring it out, begin to deal with the consequences, and to experience your love and forgiveness, Jesus, that you can forgive anything if we will repent. And then, Lord, I pray today also for perpetrators, people who are here today with things they are deeply ashamed of. Father, I pray that you would give us all a new revelation of the fact that you are actually bigger than our wickedness even the worst wickedness that anyone here has ever done, Jesus, the worst one. And there might be some pretty bad ones here today that people are ashamed of. Jesus, you're bigger than that. Even that can be turned for your good. 
I pray that you would wash away the shame. I pray that you would bring us to a place of repentance. And Lord Jesus, I also lastly, we pray for the victims today, those who are here carrying burdens for many years of deep hurts that have been done to them. Jesus, you are even bigger than that as well. Nothing is wasted with you. Nothing is out of your hand. Nothing is outside of your plan. Lord Jesus, I just pray that your love and your grace and your sovereignty and a revelation of who you are would flood these people's hearts, setting us free. In your name we pray, amen.